Hello and welcome to Power Reflections, a proud member of the Doof Network where we reflect on Wabo's most unprincipled work as it releases. I'm Ruben Morehouse. I'm Elliot Diebold. And this uh, time we are joined by some very special guests from my land, part two, reunion special, introduce yourself guests. Uh, hi, I go by Inky or Inksword on uh, Reddit and Discord, and I played Mile End's most unfortunate warden, uh, Sherry Adler. <laughs> and uh, I'm Orf, creator of June Bell and sole member of the June Bell fan club. Boo! Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know you love uh, And then uh, Eddie was also meant to be here, but unfortunately there was a scheduling snafu at the last minute, uh, yeah. so they had to drop out. And Eddie played oh. Jojo, case the, the last remaining character that hasn't been covered. We almost had the whole set. So uh. close. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, Elliot's collector desires have to go unfulfilled, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so we are here to talk, to reflect, some might say, on Vanishing Points, Arc 8. Uh, before we get into it, though, let's do a quick recap of what happened in Arc 8, since it's been a while. Uh, in 8.1, Lucy and friends deal with the aftermath of the gone aheading with Ray. Uh, before Durashe brings in the favorite bro god Metafaus for some chill healing vibes, dude. Uh, and then in 8.2, uh, having lost their appetite for food made out of Bristow, the Kenneteers bum a lift from Clem and Shelley to go grab some food from a gas station. Uh, after a nice chat, Verona kills the mood when she throws up everywhere, so the gang walk back and Lucy reveals the truth about Alexander's death. Uh, soul and self. We see Verona's notes from the class on things about yourself that you really shouldn't throw away, pretty please, which honestly is very uh, relieving to see her taking it seriously. In 8.3, Avery goes on a literal field trip to despair, where she utterly fails to escape the incarnation of yearning. Luckily, Jess saves the day, and we bid her adieu as she heads off in search of the missing piece of her cousin. Then in 8.4, Lucy and Verona attend a class on elementalism taught by Saul's mother, which is incredible, just wonderful. Um, luckily, this uh, Saul's mother's class is interrupted, thank God for Saul especially, um, by the remnants of the Belanger circle who arrive to lighten the mood by interrogating the students on how Alexander has died. Uh, yes, yeah, so 8.5 picks right up from there as Verona scrambles to figure out a way to avoid raised questions. Uh, as he goes through the Teds and then Fernanda and then comes to her. Uh, luckily, she has a cunning plan. She tries to be a Marisica, but then kind of has a meltdown and turns into an Edith. Uh, but it works. Uh, 8.A, our interlude for uh, the arc. Uh, we myth- meet the fifth Kenneteer, the delightfully caring goblin princess Liberty. Uh, after consulting the wise goblin sage, Liberty helps America launch an attack on the Kenneteers before Cherry Pop scares them off. Then in New Others number one, Matthew emails us the first round of juicy gossip on the New Others and Kenneth. We'll learn about Chloe and Nibble, ghouls with some guilt, two new packs of goblins with various failed business ventures in their past, Montague, the fun pool of possessive blood, and Sig, the future protagonist of Puff. Ah, these these new others. I I mean, they're so great. I, we don't get that much of them this arc, but so much fun getting and, these little. And I'm looking forward to be. the shakeup of the the Kennet dynamic. Yes, for yeah. sure. Um, in eight point six, Verona packs to go home and says a final goodbye to Nina and the library, her only true friend, before heading out for one last class, the field trip to the Fey realms. Uh, she and Raquel try their best to find a rhythm before America disappears and we go into panic mode. 
Uh, then in 8.7, we jump back a bit, get an additional look at the field trip from Avery's perspective as she hangs out and does some shopping with her new BFF, Fernanda, before the trio meets up to solicit the services of a fortune teller. Uh, America makes her move, but Avery uses her hockey skills to give her a verbal beatdown and a physical one for good measure. And New Others number two, uh, Matt drops the uh, last gossip while the remaining New Others, I guess it might not be the last, but you know, uh, in Kedit, uh, versus Liz, a doppelganger with a bloody pass, and Jabber, the loud little alchemical helper, Ken, the embodiment of a city, and finally, Crooked Rook, an Oni with a grudge. Then in 8.8, we round out the arc with a round robin, as Lucy reunites with her love and family, Snowdrop with her goblin buddies, Verona with Jeremy and her dad, and finally, Avery has a nice moment with Tashlit before coming home, coming out, and spotting the crooked rook watching ominously in the distance. Honestly, my favorite chapter of this whole arc mm, was that one. It was a good chapter. It was so good. <laughs> Caught me so off guard, too. I didn't know that was allowed. Yeah, I was like, wait <laughs> the a minute, where's Robin? the interlude? can't do that um what did we think of this arc on the whole it's it's interesting i there's a lot there was a lot to this arc i think my personal highlight was the interrogation of uh lucy and verona by ray uh which was just so so good Um, yeah i was just gonna say it's a very classic like decompression arc uh Mm -hmm. which is kind of weird because you only really get these in web series because in a book you kind of have to you know be more economical with your, you know, page space. But in a web serial, with this, you have these really high intensity arcs like Arc Seven, and then you have a sort of somewhat lower intensity arc like this, just to give the readers and the characters a bit of a chance to catch up. And um, I think that's fun. I think that's neat. Yeah, I've uh, mm-hmm. my mom actually started reading Pale when I told her I was coming on here in support of me, and I was nice. trying to explain to her that. An arc covers like what a chapter or maybe two chapters would cover in a regular book. So she she's been struggling with adjusting to the web serial pacing, but I think it really <laughs> showed through here with the quiet arc. The thought occurs suddenly now that um, people kind of complained when Pact was coming out that it was very like frantically paced and it didn't give the readers much of a chance to like you know relax. So I think seeing this arc get you know sort of more of a chance for the readers to relax than you might have in a story like Pact. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's a neat look at how well those writing processes evolve. Yeah, and it was, I, I really liked getting to the sort of a new version of the ruins that was very sort of different than the other ruins trips we'd seen before, which is a sort of a nice, you know, rounding out and fleshing out of what you can encounter there. Um, mm. with the incarnations, which were cool to see, those minor incarnations. And I was really worried for Avery because of the yearning seems like just, you know, <laughs> mm. the exact nail that could uh, undo her. But she did great. Yeah, I'm still unsettled by the fact that we left yearning smiling at Avery. Yeah, like, that might I don't come know back. that it's going to come back now because we're back in Kennet, but... Mm-hmm. It might not um, come back in a literal sense, but it could totally come back in the <laughs> metaphorical sense where her yearning for this or that, you know, bites her in the butt. And that incarnation was just seeing, oh, you've got a bunch of me in you. That's not going to be great for you. Yeah, I like that. Um, yeah, I thought this was a really cool arc as well, just because it would have been so easy after the end of arc seven to just be like, OK, we're going back to Kennet right now because uh, this is messy and I don't want to have to deal with all like processing the aftermath of the Kennedy is like you know fighting with people or 
people holding grudges. Uh, like I thought it was really cool that we actually got to see a bit of the aftermath of mm-hmm. what happened. Whereas, you know, like in, in Arc 5, once they kind of made Daniel and Clem go away, the girls just went straight back to school. <laughs> and we're only just finding out what happened to Kenneth now. And I, I thought it was kind of interesting that the whole uh, who killed Alexander thing is sort of covered for the adult practitioners, but all the mm-hmm. kids and students still kind of know, kind of, you know, are gunning for them, even though the adult practitioner practitioners have, you know, better things to do than hunt after them, and it's kind of handled, but also definitely not. <laughs> Which is definitely a good thing for the kids, because the people who are on Alexander's level, if they felt like seeking revenge, there would not be very much that the Kenneteers could do about it. <laughs> It's, it's interesting that all the adult practitioners are kind of like, I got the vibe that with Alexander's death, the adult practitioners are like, okay, that just leaves power that needs to be jostled for. So we'll focus on that. Whereas the kid practitioners, are the ones who are like, no, there needs to be vengeance for this injustice. It's just another beat of like being a practitioner in this world really makes right. you quite jaded and, and not at all like emotional or a human, I guess. Well, that's like didn't didn't they sort of say uh, Musa's been put in charge now mm-hmm. because yep. or part of the motivation is because he just won't bother looking into it. <laughs> well, that's why it's Raymond just, uh, yeah voted for him, but it's not clear whether the other major families what they're thinking. Yeah, that. still though, like it, it's funny how like we we sort of dealt with it and got little repercussions, but it's incredible how willing a lot of the rest of the practitioner world is to just sort of be like. Well, that happened. He's dead now. Moving on. <laughs> well, it is very nice to see an adult kind of letting it go and not pressing them on it, even though they kind of know. It warms the heart a little. <laughs> and uh, I, I do think that was sort of sort of the point of this arc, uh, was outlining sort of the tough problems growing up and the trio sort of finding their place in practitioners versus like practitioner practice and other practitioner practice, you know as uh, wild uh, practitioners um, and sort of they're clarifying their, they've been complaining about having tough choices about allies and trusting people and not getting, you know, clean solutions and clean, simple problems. And this arc sort of shows them maturing and how they deal with that and handle all that with like talking Liberty down and, or uh, America down instead of, you know, just curb stomping her or whatever. Not that they could curb stomp her, but. Uh, so I think this is sort of like the transition of they were kids now, now they're back in Tenet with some adult in them. Yeah, we're getting to see the experiences of the previous arc kind of result in character development in real time. Because there wasn't mm. much time for that much character development before when they were like trying not to die, and <laughs> now they're like, oh, well, this has you know changed my perspective on this or that. Yeah, they're 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 processing it all, and that's leading to yeah like character growth i really like that framing of uh like the the problems of growing up and then also finding their place because i think that's part of it is as you're growing up you're like what am i gonna do or what am, who am i gonna be yeah and and like rona complaining you know saying oh no adults i know are happy and now they're sort of seeing that complex world where like Verona's dad complaining about you know his co-worker who's a jerk and now they're like ugh we have to work with these practitioners or a jerk or you know break bread with and sort of growing up into seeing you know the shades of gray which is kind of sad to see them lose that you know 
childlike, you know, approach to others and the practice and relationships, but it's also good, you know. And being a practitioner is definitely, is definitionally not being innocent. Which, uh, <laughs> you know, I think you're going to have to lose that both literally and metaphorically right. somewhere along the road. It's interesting. The question of, you know, obviously this is a story starring three teenage girls. Normally you would quite easily be able to fit into the category of like a, a coming of age story, right? Mm-hmm. And the point about the loss of both uppercase and lowercase innocence is quite interesting, but it doesn't necessarily feel to me like these characters are, I mean, they're growing, of course, but it's very much like they, they've always kind of been in the right about the stuff that they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't necessarily feel like they're, they're radically changing that much in the sense they're of subtle. their outlook. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I think they're definitely holding on to sort of their morals and their sense of justice and everything, but mm. they're just becoming very slightly more practical on how they pursue them and understanding that it's not, I think a big thing is that they can't just solve a problem and it goes away. There's structural things that cause the problems. Yeah. You can't just turn yourself into a cat and it'll all be <laughs> They tried to cut the Gordian knot and then they realized that it was like holding up something heavy and then it fell on them or something. <laughs> yeah. <kind of> terrible <laughs> metaphor. And I don't know if you discussed this in the 8.8 discussion, but Verona talking about how when she was in that dark place, she used to try to think of a cat to drown out those dark feelings. That was such a, you know, great mirror to sort of what she's been doing with her practice and wanting to become another. Yeah. God, I don't think we did call that out. That's oh, a really good insight. Thank <laughs> so, you. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's just the extension. She's still... A, at some level, just trying to cat away her problems. Mm-hmm. I do want to take a second to, uh, you know, briefly rave about the the fairy shopping spree chapters. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, Hale in general is definitely like the most tabletop story I think Waldo's ever written. Um, you know, Twig probably comes up second there, um, but this is like really leading heavily into that in those chapters. It's the dungeon master giving you a little time to you know, buy some potions and what have you, <laughs> but also you throw a, like, minor encounter in there. It's not going to be, you know, none of your characters are going to die, but, like, you can't go that long without encountering a little different. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, it is sort of have uh, an interesting mirror to mile end in our experience in that they sort of were awoken because of a crisis and they have to deal with it. I'm just so jealous that they got to take a couple weeks off and go to magic school and not sleep in a barn. <laughs> yeah, they, they got the trip to Hogsmeade before they had to head out to, you know. Right. Yeah, whereas, uh, yeah, Yule and Myland didn't quite get that opportunity. <laughs> Oof. Um, yeah, I, I, I like that as well because I'm just thinking back now, like so much of like getting all the gifts and everything from all the others and having mm-hmm. like our checklist of all the gifts um i can sort of see the connection to tabletop stuff there like you give your party a bunch of like items and see if they remember to use them yeah it seems like sort of they're slowly building up the tools that you're gonna you know sort of the the checkoff's guns that are gonna swing back in and become important and like, like, yeah, like a video game inventory where you're, you know, you have the boomerang now, so now you can fix that problem that's been mm. hovering <laughs> over you and stuff. Which makes it a little disappointing that the trio didn't end up buying more. Although I guess we <laughs> yes. didn't see one perspective, so it's possible that uh, 
someone did pick up a bunch of cool toys and just hasn't mentioned it yet. So nothing is Lucy's possible. coming yeah, back. Yeah, Lucy, the you know, face of swordswoman. She pulls out, I've got this like, uh, these six swords and knives that I purchased <laughs> while we were there. Yeah, I am still a little surprised that like, it wasn't until Raquel seemingly asked her what she was interested in. Verona was like, oh yeah, I think I might want to buy X. Like I, Mm. I assumed she was going to go in there with like all sorts of hopes and dreams, but she was so distracted she barely even thought about the shopping. Yeah, yeah. It, well, part of that's also just paying attention to the the fae, as they were saying. Don't pay attention to the stuff you want to buy too much, or yeah, pay <laughs> attention to who's trying to sell it to you and what they're asking for in exchange. Because yeah. you know, I mean, I'm sure they would have taken human money, but you can definitely sell other things there. You know, less material things even. And can we just say it was cool to see the fall court and the high fall court and sort of just going about business and not being drama queens or, you know, yeah. pulling all these schemes, them just existing. It, it sort of puts, you know, makes the fae, well, I don't want to say a little more human, but, you know, mm. a little more uh, multifaceted, we'll say. You don't yeah. really see others in their, like, natural habitat that much. It's usually them running around in the human world doing terrible things to humans. Now we're seeing them like interacting with each other. Yeah, it's a really good point. Like we haven't we haven't dove into the Warrens beyond just seeing it as like some shallow tunnels and mm -hmm. stuff. But it's like, yeah, you don't like I, you know, yeah. What a what do goblin towns look like in the mm -hmm. Warrens or whatever? Mm -hmm. And yeah. seeing this perspective of what the fairy looked like in their own society, it was a lot more. I don't know, just kind of like glum and grim, right? Um, <laughs> I guess maybe characterized by the fact that the fairy that we have seen before are the ones who managed to kind of make it out of that circumstance to an extent and, and get out into the real world and kind of survive out there. Whereas the fairy who aren't strong enough to do that, presumably are the ones that are kind of trapped inside the structures within the, the fae realm. And also I think sort of thematically fall is like closest to winter in terms of like, you know, it's the colder month. Mm. So I think it makes some sense that these are the fairy that are more like, you know, inclined mm. towards winter versus spring and summer. Well, it could also be not necessarily a power or a court thing, but a personality thing in that they're trying to stave off boredom, right? So if they're not bored with the fae realm, they're, they're basically, you know, all the thrill seekers go to the human realm or whatever. Um, so that's why they're all so, you know, extra. is <laughs> because yeah. they're looking for their next hit of uh, interest. That makes sense, yeah. And I wonder if that healing magic we saw is going to come back, because it seemed like a demonstration you couldn't easily replicate. You know, what are the kids going to do? Call call down. Yeah. I, I wonder if we'll see Metaphaus again. I hope so. He was fun. <laughs> he was a very fun god, but he felt like the kind of character that Wabo felt comfortable putting in because he knew he wasn't going to bring him back and have to deal with him again. <laughs> Yeah, I think yeah. from memory, his prices for another healing were all pretty high. I don't think any of the Kenneteers are particularly uh, I, keen to get tattoos or right. dance for a couple of weeks or whatever the hell it was. Uh, yeah, they probably, if it was any other sort of kid practitioners, i go, oh, animal sacrifice, easy, you know. But I don't think they'd quite jump on the opportunity to sacrifice, a, I don't know, a, what would be a major animal sacrifice, an elephant? Yeah, I mean, we had a whole session in my land that was devoted to going to get some animals to go sacrifice. I mean, we ended up picking up <laughs> one that we didn't want to in the end, but that was more of a coincidence. And you didn't anything. pick me up any skulls. <laughs> no, no, 
we'd want opportunities. How am I supposed to work with this? <laughs> uh, actually, speaking of which, it is kind of interesting that all of the gods we've really seen referenced in Pale so far are like, I mean, you know, maybe I'll be struck down for saying this, but they're kind of lamer. Like, they're not like, you know, classical gods. There's the one that was like, well, I could have been fire, but I'm not. It's like, wow, dude, cool. And Bobby <laughs> ended up attracting the attention of not one, but two major gods of major pantheons within like eight hours of being awakened. I mean, like, <laughs> damn. Yeah, you're right. I wonder if it's like, oh, like, yeah, obviously Bobby had two, yeah, major named gods coming at him in like, uh, yeah, the first day, whereas we've been learning a lot in pale oh a lot of these gods are ones who keep their names out of the history books intentionally mm -hmm. um which just opens up like way more freedom to do crazy stuff with it right i think it might have been honestly with you know the minor god you're going to invest in someone long term but with these guys they probably figured it's like a coin toss as to whether we're going to survive the week so you know if they give him a little power now and then dies two days later well, who cares well, it could also just also be that uh, Daroker, who summoned him, is not, you know, an actual divine practitioner all that much. So the gods she has on call. Yeah, that's true. We've was one of the one of the student families are uh, divine practitioners, but Bobby supposedly had the long line of. Yeah, like he had yeah. some yeah, yeah, shade built up with some them. family family. Yeah. What else? What are the thoughts? What are the reflections? <laughs> do we have from this arc? <laughs> The goblin princesses. Oh yeah, yeah. They were. I love the transformation sequence. That <laughs> oh, was. Yes. It was such a great demonstration oh. of like uh, girly girls who are still sort of quote unquote girly girls, sort of in mindset, but they're you know goblin queens slash princesses, and how that affects you know they still want to have a cool transformation sequence like Sailor Moon. They just do it. <laughs> with smoke bombs and goblins and goblin helpers like you're right. a snow white getting the animal helpers to to make your dress yeah it's um yeah. i mean the practice is all downhill from that sequence <laughs> there let's <laughs> be honest yeah i think it might consistently be my favorite thing about the this universe the fact that theatrics and dramatic entrances are so powerful <laughs> that you just are naturally inclined to do this ridiculous shit <laughs> And goblin practices, especially that is like even more so that that mm. is the goblin's whole deal is being loud and in your face. And it was, yeah, mm. uh, American Liberty, good good stuff. And I really appreciate Liberty's uh, approach of you know patting the goblins on the head and giving them some candy rather than binding them and kicking them in the butt to get them to do what she wants, <laughs> which I think is a, a good sort of hope in that you know how the the kenneteers all all deal with other by being nice to them and trying to support them and you know give them what they need rather than binding them and you know putting them in chains and that was sort of a big part of their adjustment to the normal practitioners and we see that even when they're kids still there's still that instinct to sort of you know see others as people or personas or whatever kind of ties back a little to what we were talking about with Alexander, where when he dies, the adults are just like, oh, it's a bunch of free power and influence. And the kids are like, oh, a person that I knew is dead. Mm -hmm. America doesn't even, like, seem to have liked him that much, but she's still like, I liked him a bit, and, you know, he's dead, and it's, it 
it's clearly their fault. They're just going to, like, get away with it. And it was interesting coming from the goblin practitioners, not, you know. Yeah, you wouldn't expect them to care that much, but they do. I I think it's interesting to note the fact that, you know, when they were being interrogated, that the Kennedys, I mean, they have gotten away with Alexander's death, right? Like, they... (laughs) <laughs> they did murder. They, well, I mean, they didn't murder somebody, but they were at least heavily involved with murdering somebody, right. and then the subsequent cover-up, right? Yeah. At this point, they're basically accomplices, uh, if not more than that. I, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, it is weird to think. Like, I mean, yes, there's justification for it, sure, but right, they they have gotten away with a murder, and they're also, on the other hand, trying to stop other people from getting away with the murder of the Carmine Beast. Like, <laughs> it's just such a weird web that we're seeing unravel. Yeah, no, I think that's you know, th- bringing it back to my brilliant observation. No, um, <laughs> of of them having to sort of grow up and work with the world. Like, it's not that they've given up the fight; it's that sometimes the fight is a fight and they Mm. have to make choices, you know? Um, And I think there is also symbolism in that Alexander was a human and the Carmine beast was an other. And how, how is that reacted to differently, you know, by both practitioners and others? Well, I'm still convinced there'll be some sort of link. Like, yeah. Like how much is the death of the Carmine beast going to resemble the killing of Alexander? Like, yeah, as we learn more, is it going to be, you know, Edith or whoever, like mm-hmm. they were in a similar situation. The Carmine Beast was limiting what they could do or something in an unfair way, and mm-hmm. uh, they they killed it to sort of get, you know, free from its influence in right. the same way. Uh, you know, the the Kennedys have just done Alexander. Yeah, definitely something I'm looking forward to. <laughs> um, or even just, you know, they were taking some cues from the Kennedy others about how to lie about whether or not you were involved with the murder. It's possible that might, you know, sort of come around on them. Like, oh, maybe they were lying to us about their involvement with the murder. I, I haven't had time to do it, but I have been in the last, like, arc or two very tempted to go back and read all those initial... Uh, interviews over again and see what questions they asked and you know <laughs> what was the exact answer and try to ferret it out but i am along for the ride for wild Bill. <laughs> yeah i tried doing that in about like arc five or six mm-hmm. i went back and reread a bunch of them and it was still just like there's so much especially with like ones like marissica she just she throws so much information <laughs> out there that i lose track as i'm reading it I'm right. like, wait what are we talking about again which is like exactly the point but it right. drives me nuts <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean she hasn't been exonerated necessarily either i feel like i see most people talking about uh edith and matthew like as prime but uh, you know fake and change what they look like and who knows someone else with glamour or mm. yeah marusica's definitely on my watch list <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah top of the list for sure well speaking of fairy i have a, a fun little game uh, maybe if people are into it, uh, which fairy court do you think you most resemble? I'll come clean and say I probably would have to pick winter because I have a very bad habit of getting into like you know patterns of just really horrible lazy behavior that I <laughs> can never get myself out of. So I think I would have a hard time keeping things fresh enough not to fall to winter. But well, what would you be before your winter? Um, I think June was, I want to say high spring, it might have been summer, uh, hopefully Wildbo doesn't get mad at me for revealing that, 
Um, but yeah, probably one of those. I'm terrible with money, so probably not <laughs> high fall. Um, I would have to say for myself, high spring, just because I'm an artistic type. I was the one who drew the uh, character portraits for uh, Mile End. So uh, oh, they're, cool. they're the artsy fartsy ones. So I guess high spring. I feel like my answer would probably be high summer. Just I feel like I'm the personality type that tends to play into dichotomies of heroes and villains and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like uh, searching for adventure <laughs> and trying to, to do heroic things and stuff like that just feels like it would be where I would fall. But it is interesting to think that, you know, we don't really have a great picture on what winter actually means either. So hard to know around that one. That's true. Yeah, I... I have similar feelings to Orf. I feel like I should say winter just because I, I definitely, uh, I easily stagnate. Um, but like, I'd like to believe that before that, I <laughs> in summer below or something. Summer below. Ooh. Yeah. I just, we did get a tiny little bit of winter court, didn't we? They talked about the, the fae that could only repeat the one phrase or whatever for the winter uh, court. I, I dare say. There was a winter like expert that showed up pretty briefly in the in arc seven, but uh, the details are kind of slipping my mind. Yeah, one of I students. think um, uh, Estrella is a winter fairy specialist. Yes, that sounds right. Well, um, and and we did get the oh, I wanted to scream at the kids at the fairy shopping trip to ask the fairy who killed the Carmine Beast. <laughs> <laughs> Why they spend their questions on? Uh, I mean, obviously. Uh, I don't know if the, I think the Fae probably wouldn't necessarily know that. Well, it can tell the future, but it can't necessarily see the past. But you could ask it, who will we eventually determine kills the Carmine Beast? So you just have uh, to admit that you're going to eventually get it right. I, I wouldn't want to try to get Trixie wording <laughs> in with the Fae. Um, That's why I'm the fairy mage, I guess. Uh, but I do think it was interesting that they suggested uh, what Gilheim would... Uh, I've been reading instead of listening, so I'm terrible at the yeah. pronunciations. What he would look like once he fell. And it seemed sort of to me that for the Fae, not necessarily, it's not like they're literally a robot, but maybe they just fail to adapt and evolve. So he could still sort of be what we would consider like a person as opposed to a robot, just inflexible. Yeah. Yeah, the scale we're talking about as well. I mean, maybe for the entirety of the Kennedy's lifetimes, they wouldn't even notice a difference. We we don't really know that, right? Well, they did say they wouldn't like who he became. So True. Th that might be, you know, maybe a m change when the moment he falls from summer to winter, and after that they don't like him. But I don't know if we'd be able to see. You know, we live on such different time scales and such different definitions of, you know, boredom and interest in new things and old things in the Fae that uh, he might look and act. We wouldn't be able to see the pattern that he'd fallen into mm. without the benefit of 100 years or whatever. Mm. I'm surprised yeah. they didn't even try to ask about the Carmine Beast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd yeah. think they would have given it some thought. It's like literally their job. I guess they were kind of more focused on the things that the Fae fortune teller would be immediately right. knowledgeable about rather than like trying to get into weird other questions that might not even pan out, you know? 
Yeah, uh, they because they did approach the classes of let's find out all the others in in Kennet and let's go to a class or a book on each of them so we know our countermeasures for each one. Mm-hmm. And this was sort of their oh we haven't done the Fey yet we gotta you know learn how to counter those two. So they might have been a little focused on that. Mm-hmm. If if you went to the the Fey market uh, of the items we saw on display and that they bought, what would you want? No, oh, that's such a hard question. It feels like such a <laughs> trick question as well. Like, <laughs> I think for for about three quarters of the things that we saw, there were even more drawbacks that we didn't learn about. You know what I mean? Like, right. none of them I'd be confident saying, oh, this would probably be fine. <laughs> yeah. The key that could open any door uh, to yeah, any the, other door, that, that mm, seemed like that sort of good. the most practical and... I'm sure you would easily get lost and lose your sense, you know, something like you use it all the time and you lose your sense of direction because if, you know, the, uh, the thing that's two hours away is the same as the thing that's two minutes away, you know, nothing, you know, feels distance becomes meaningless, but it seemed like the most practical and sort of, yeah. that would be the one I would open pick. a door into somewhere you don't want to be and you end up capital L lost. And- yeah. yeah. I, um, I liked the sound of the things that just make you prettier. <laughs> Maybe I'm a bit vain, but I was like, I could see myself buying those. Yeah, but yeah, they, they're not permanent unless you get them when you're a kid. Yeah. I mean, well, they've just got a, a regular customer then, I guess. <laughs> yeah. well, it's nice that you can use real money. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, mm. that would probably be my answer as well. I'm kind of basic, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, no takers on the pregnancy charm? Oh, that reminds me. me of uh, Mile End as well, actually. There's mm-hmm. some fun pregnancy stuff there, too. Kind of a theme with Wildbo's writing. Mm. I don't want to cast any aspersions, <laughs> but like, maybe cool that on the pregnancy stuff a little. It's yeah. easy hor- horror material, though, isn't it? Like, I think I It is good, probably it. solid body horror stuff. Yeah. Huh. But there's there's another web serial author who I follow who's been accused of like having a pregnancy thing for including <laughs> far less in his story than Wildbo does. So hopefully that guy does never start reading Wild Bow and he's going to have a field day. Well, Wild Bow includes so many diverse things, it's hard to believe they were all kinks. That is true. <laughs> yeah. I will say, uh, in looking back over Pale, that it was surprising to me that basically the very first interlude has been the most sort of gruesome and, you know, gory mm. that it's gotten. Yeah, I think there was an, definitely an initial thought of like, oh, this is going to be a much more like, I, I not quite the right term, but like family-friendly, I guess, entry in Wabo's <laughs> canon. And then we got that Gabe interlude, and it was just like, oh my god, never mind. <laughs> but then since then, you're right, it has been, um, it's been horrifying, things like what happened to Bristow, right? But but mm-hmm. not as explicitly gruesome, yeah. I guess. Less yeah. on-screen gore. Yeah. yeah. And... And we get these, like I said, these nice, great big arcs where it, they're sort of chilling and they have a social life and, yeah. you know, they're growing up and they get to go back to their parents and have a moment to breathe. Mm. Yeah. I kind of have to wonder whether Pale was written any more than the other works with an eye towards, like, marketability. I know that obviously eh. some, uh, you know, people have talked about, like, adapting Worm, but there's a lot of stuff that you would, like, kind of just have to cut to get it onto like any mainstream you know anything but with pale i can kind of see like you know younger protagonists a little less like horrific 
you know, it would probably be easier. But um, having said that, then there are now also like the bonus materials, which are just like really playing with the web serial format and mm-hmm. almost impossible to adapt to anything that isn't a web serial, right? Like, well, that's true, but they managed to make like Homestuck into books, and that has like you know flash animations. Yeah, true, so. true. Uh, I don't think it'd be you know traditionally publishable because I think traditional publishing has very strict short sort of genre expectations. You'd have to pitch it really hard for someone to think this was you know they were going to print out a book and that's on top of all the editing and you know cutting down you'd have to do i think wildbo he's at home in the serial format especially with like we said all these extra materials um but he has listened to fans who went to pact and said i had to set this down it was too grim it was too dark Mm. you know uh through the ringer and i think he got some of the same feedback on board at least starting chapters about you know um and the last fights so i think he he's being mindful of that and slowing down and signaling that this is you know the characters are going to be more okay in this i hope than they <laughs> yeah, were necessarily at the end of pact and worm and all that i mean obviously i'm biased but i think if i did like win the lottery or whatever <laughs> and then as a part of that i was able to use all that money to like green light a, like a Walbo TV show, I'd lean towards Pact or Pale myself. Mm. But one thing that's great about Wildbo is writing is all these, you know, magic effects and superpowers and stuff. So hard to depict on television. It would be super cool to see. But yeah, no, I think I think I'd lean towards Pact. I would say Twig is um, Twig's number one show. I I wanted to get all of the praise that it absolutely deserves, but <laughs> I recognize that I'm pretty much the only person who feels that way. And I no, I think I think there's a there's a there's a group. I think there's a small twig cult. Mm. Yes, I haven't read it yet, so. Oh man. Same. I'm a terrible person. <laughs> my head. It's hard to find time when oh. Wildbow only takes you know a month off or whatever in between serials or less. Yeah. I forget how much he took up. It's it's hard to find time to catch up, you know. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> um. So I we've we've kind of bounced around topics a bunch, which is which is great for these reflections episodes. I thought we should bring it back to to arcade. Is there anything specifically on arcade or pal stuff that we should uh, dive into? Um, I would. Uh, I think honestly, it, my takeaway was sort of the growth and the the parenting. And how about uh, we should probably talk about the relationship when they went back home. You know. Of, with mm. their parents and their classmates and Snowdrop and Melissa. And a rare uh, love of getting a little friskier scene. <laughs> mm. That makes uh, number three, I want to say, in total. Maybe four. I don't know. It's not like I'm keeping track. Depends on what you count as a scene. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, uh, I did want to ask you guys, because I saw some of the comments between... We got, we got part of uh, that last uh, 8.8 was from everyone, including Snowdrop's perspective and we've seen in the previous snowdrops perspective that she hears herself as just speaking normally and in this time it seemed like melissa was responding to her speech as it was depicted in the text and do we think wild bow was was showing us her lying stuff this time despite it being from snowdrops perspective or was melissa in her new burgeoning you know magicness somehow 
reading the intent behind the words. Because that, that was one thing that caught me. I had to guess it's probably because even if she is capital A aware, she's also still kind of capital A innocent. So the, the rule of discourse maybe doesn't apply unless you're uh, an other or practitioner. Hmm. But, uh, Did we see the other aware interact with Snowdrop and get confused? Mm, I don't know. We Plus might. I think we do. Yeah, I'm I, not I sure. think it was... Yeah, I... I didn't try to read into it. I, I just chalked it up to oh, it seems to work better for this one if we have regular snowdrop. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I don't know. Like snowdrop's inclusion at all to me seemed like the the biggest statement. Like on her growth, right? Um, mm-hmm. She now warrants full crediting alongside the other three. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't um, judge Wildbo at all if he was just like, yeah, I'm not writing this in backwards talk for like a whole section of a chapter. I would definitely, if I was writing this story, I would up <laughs> on that. Well, and I think the conversation with Melissa kind of relied on us knowing Snowdrop's gimmick, and it might have been a bit much for me, at least, if we had to like be doing like the double, double where it was what, like, what would the lie for that be? Okay, then they're reacting yeah. to the lie and not what we're yeah. Like um, I just would have fallen apart. <laughs> yeah, no, that that was because I went into it assuming we were hearing her tell the truth because that was what mm. the previous Snowdrop interview mm. was, and then I got confused a little bit at that you know part, so. Wanted to see other people's takes on that. And also, Snowdrop seems to be on track to be familiar. Yep. Officially. Pretty good. I mean, we kind of suspected it might happen for a while, but nice to get it confirmed. Right. Surprised it didn't happen sooner, honestly. It kind of seemed like it didn't need to happen, but now we actually do have a compelling reason for Avery to want to do it. So Right. Let's do it. And and they are talking about sort of Snowdrop being everyone. They were talking about, you know, everyone gets a familiar, the one familiar that they're going to share. Mm. But there's, you know, we had Alpi as someone who was a possibility, right? We have John who was kind of thought about as a possibility for a familiar. They seem, I mean, John especially is a very like combat oriented choice, right? Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Well... We've seen, you know, that the Kenneteers can pull off uh, powering stuff with their capital S self mm. way more than your standard practitioner. And I think a lot of that comes down to their practice being rooted in their hometown and them yeah. still being so connected to their innocent families. And I think Snowdrop helps with that, honestly. that I think that, that plays into their strengths. That's and, true. And I, I felt... I wish they hadn't sort of... I guess there's probably still some people who never figured out Snowdrop's gimmick. Taking her to the school and spoiling the whole she-can-lie thing to everyone. Ah, could have been so much fun to play with later. <laughs> Although I guess, um, since everyone is kind of expecting that, you know, barring something unexpected, John is going to end up being Carmine for like 10 minutes and then getting killed. Digging uh, mm. him as a familiar might be a good way to spare him that, you know, awful fate. Although, maybe at the expense of someone else taking the spot. I don't know. Can judges still be familiars? I feel like you could still become a judge, and it might just be the case of, you know, the the familiar-practitioner relationship flipping due to the power imbalance. Yeah, that would be unfortunate. You know, like, trying to take the Carmine Beast as a familiar probably wouldn't wouldn't go so well. Yeah, that's Though I could also see becoming a familiar as being one of those, you know, take a break from your job, be a familiar for 40 years, you know, <laughs> things that uh, can attract some others to it. Mm. Yeah. Which only leaves, where's the domain going to be? Yeah, that is an interesting question. 
Thank you, Wildbo, ah. for teaching me how to say domain by having the <laughs> characters literally call it out. Not Demizny. <laughs> <laughs> Demizny. No. He really loves that word. Shows up in a bunch of his other unrelated words. Ah. It is a cool word. It is. It's great. He uses some great words in general for, for Pact and Pale, you know, um, using uh, uh, po- poisons? It's for power. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot pronounce it, but, uh, and I think that adds to, you know, that, that spirit. Um, we're wandering away from eight points. Yes. <laughs> from Arc 8 again. Uh, but yes, yeah, so my basic takeaway is this is sort of a reinforcing of their self and their connections to the world. It was really great to see Verona not totally uh, reject her dad, though there's some dad rejection going on, um, you know, keeping that tether still. Mm. And, or at and, least uh, making some new tethers, maybe, so she doesn't have to reject her yeah. humanity. She can just right. reject her dad and go hang out with some <laughs> other people. Booker maybe says not that. all of humanity deserves to, uh, you know, deserve your eternal scorn just because one of your parents is kind of shitty. It's just oh, fun. that's not fair. Both of her parents. Are <laughs> yeah, <that's fair. laughs> uh, well, and you know her her best friend. She saw that messy breakup and how it ruined Lucy. And you know, mm. I feel like she doesn't have a lot of great adult role models, and that's why others, you know, the Kenda others, have sort of become her role models of the closest thing she has. Yeah, right. But don't get me wrong, I totally support rejecting your humanity and becoming another, but it seems like the story doesn't agree with me. That's the optimal life route for any practitioner. I think you'd have you just have to be really careful about what you're turning yourself into, at least. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, think... I worry that early story Verona was just gonna be like, I am a cat now and <laughs> not consider the consequences. <laughs> it's not the ideal form that you want to be yeah. in for the next hundred years. You just pick like a big scary cat with sharp teeth, not like a house cat that's literally been bred into being harmless. <laughs> oh man, that's yes. like, there's a there's a city in Australia that has like a, a panther that mm-hmm. has apparently existed for like a hundred years. And it's like, there are no natural panthers here. So it was like, you know, it's like a, it's a crypt, what are they called? The like Cryptid? Bigfoot? Cryptid, Crypt- yeah. Maybe that's just like what Verona could be. That would be just great. be some, some weird like tiger that lives in the Kennet area. And for hundreds of years, people will be like, what's up with this weird magical tiger? It's just a girl who had a bad dad. <laughs> uh, I still think she could, like within the bounds of the story and the events. I don't think she will, just because that would sort of break up the trio, right? Unbalance their whole thing. And I don't think she'd want to do that. I think if their power, if they weren't, you know, sort of the trio and their power was linked together i think she'd be very happy to turn into a cat and be lucy's familiar but i don't think she's gonna mess with their practice like that although i guess if it ends up being two real people and two familiars including snowdrop that's kind of a different balance like you're sort of rearranging the diagram a little a square Hmm. yeah yeah i i don't think uh verona will and i think this uh was sort of a good chapter showing that she is not going after that impulse as you know sort of knee-jerk as she was when she started the story um okay so here's here's a uh, another question bit of a mm-hmm. non sequitur but who would you have picked to be the new head of the blue heron institute so we, we talked about musa before and he's obviously 
because you're not my favorite person. Who do you think would have been a better choice? I I actually don't know if I have a better choice, so I'm going to let the others answer. <laughs> well, um, I oh, you can go first, Dorf. Oh, <laughs> um, I'll go with DeRocher, uh, however you pronounce that. Um, because I think picking someone who took a side in the conflict is pretty stupid because it's kind of like retroactively handing one side the victory. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, not that I think he's going to follow Bristow's plan to the letter, but like, it, it's kind of a, a biased pick that's going to leave all the people who sided with Alexander feeling like, you know, left in the cold a bit. And I think of the people who didn't take a side, she's both the strongest and... Uh, the scariest i guess those are maybe synonymous in this context but um <laughs> yeah she scares me and i like that so i pick her um my you know my heartfelt reaction is make zed the headmaster you know he's such a good boy freedom <laughs> of information he wouldn't hide anything you know from the students or hide practice tricks or anything um obviously that's not super practical in terms of the whole power imbalance and stability and everything i think it would have been nice to see raymond try to stick on and you know work through his issues and maybe he wouldn't have been as hands-on a headmaster but i think he could have dealt with his you know programs and everything with some of the the tricky parts of getting students arranged and dealing with teachers and recruiting them and i think he has some of the skill sets that could let him do that if he he works on himself a little bit first <laughs> but if it's zed then zed can be the zed master <laughs> <laughs> wow which i'm yeah so as an american i'm supposed to say z i, I don't know <laughs> i mean i do like ray but i feel like as headmaster it kind of makes me think back to that first class where he was just like pointedly ignoring Lucy and if, like if that's how he deals with like two minor unknown variables in one class then like the whole process of running an entire school like <laughs> you know <laughs> even for a strong practitioner you it can't was... get that down to entirely to numbers it was strife it was strife just ignore that it's <laughs> fine just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I do like I think we've seen more humanity from him than several of the other adult practitioners so i guess it's sort of oh, why definitely. i'm gravitating towards both zed and ray is that they've been you know sort of mm. fair to to the girls and you know s seem to actually be concerned with others a bit their treatment as well at least zed did when he was like hmm about his library student uh spirit about nina when they first got to the mm. school so i think that's the sort of thing where it's like pie in the sky I wish it was like this, but it takes way more structural rearranging and fighting to actually get to the point where you can make all those changes. Yeah. You really not gonna not gonna commit to one? Oh I don't know. It's it's such a hard question. Zed is a great choice. I kind of <laughs> would have gone for Nicolette as well. Uh, there's the same. I don't think no, because my my problem with those answers is I just don't think those are realistic. Unfortunately, they're right. not. It's they're a tough not. sell. There's right. no good realistic answer. I don't think. No. <laughs> Durusha is an interesting one because she, I there's a lot to like, but she also I think might be lacking on that human side mm -hmm. uh, that that Ray would excel. Can you have co headmasters? <laughs> I mean, like, maybe. Durusha and and Ray together. 
I mean, she has at least a basic amount of empathy because she kind of did her best to save Soul from his torment (laughs) at the hands of his mother. That kind of that kind of did incline more to her as a person, not just like Mm. as a practitioner. I get the feeling though, with what she deals with, she might have to like when she has to leave for a crisis, like she's Mm -hmm. she's got to handle it, you know, like how her familiar is off wrestling for years mm. three years or whatever it is with some other other um we might know that she seems a little bit like a powder keg potentially i think her yeah. the respect she has and her personality would make her good at it i don't know when she's calm she's great but i don't know if i want to see her uh <laughs> during the harder yeah. parts of wrestling all this out <laughs> I, I think the the biggest problem with Durisha is probably getting her to accept the role mm-hmm. Uh, as well like i assume it's not it's something that you're allowed to say no to right yeah you are the headmaster now no choice because it just doesn't seem like something she'd choose yeah which is probably why she's a good a good fit um it, it does sort of seem like both her and ray they were focused more on their practice and refining it rather than mm. sort of playing the the game and the politics of being a practitioner I mean, they played to it some, obviously, because you kind of have to. But, you know, Ray just sort of did his own thing. And, be, you know, he was basically the tech startup of practice, you know, starting the website <laughs> and everything and spearheading technomancy, which I think you do need someone who can do the politics at the school, which is unfortunate because that's what makes things like what happened happen, you know. But mm-hmm. it's a rock and a hard place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now now we reach the traditional question that we, <laughs> that we launch at our uh, reflecting guests, which is, who is the best Kenneteer? That is a very easy question for me. Only one of them is a literal cat girl, and that's Verona. So she gets my vote <laughs> immediately. Um, I see a lot of myself in Avery, and she comes uh, prepackaged with Snowdrop, so I think it's the best <laughs> bang for your buck uh, that they're both the best girls. It's a pretty good argument. <laughs> Ruben, where are you up to on the... I'm still... I'm, I'm at Lucy still. So I was originally Avery. It's changed to Lucy over the course of the past few arcs, and I'm, I'm sticking there. She's wonderful. She's so wonderful. <laughs> I, yeah, I do really love the development she's gotten and sort of, I think, getting out of the rut of Kennet and sort of her mm. preconceptions about how people there treated her helped her clarify, you know, sort of for the world. Mm, yeah um all right now other traditional things that we do towards the end of these episodes is we touch on the arc titles vanishing points right what could this mean looking back what do we think this mean uh i'll I'll just kick it off with the traditional definition Mm -hmm. of a vanishing point um it's the point at which something disappears or ceases to exist um it's most it's most commonly used uh i think in like the context of like 2d art mm-hmm. like so that it's like the spot where parallel lines converge so if you got a picture of a railway you know as it moves into the distance uh the vanishing point is where you stop seeing the railway line yeah uh that's definitely sort of uh, me as i said being a person who draws that's what i thought of first when i saw the arc title and um approaching it from that sort of art direction it's that these parallel lines when they're actually in the 3d world they they will never touch they don't intersect 
but in order to properly capture them and it's sort of a 2D space, you make them touch, which is sort of, you know, an error of translating, but it's required for them to be, you know, that shift in perspective. So I can kind of see it as a metaphor for sort of practitioners in humanity of the Blue Heron incident crossing sort of the lives of others in Kennet in the ways that shouldn't really have happened. Um, and also sort of that flip in perspectives of changing your perspective or filtering it through a lens sort of makes these clashes happen and sort of the end of that. <laughs> if To end my, you know, sort of English <laughs> lit <laughs> art <laughs> over an- analysis. <laughs> I like that. Because especially like so much of this arc was uh, the Kennedys being on the other side of a murder investigation. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a bit of a perspective flip there. I'm going to be a little overly literal and say a lot of this arc is dealing with uh, Alexander vanishing and then the discovery of the point where he vanished. Uh, you know, maybe <laughs> not quite as elegant or English lit. Uh, but, you know, hey, if it fits, it fits. It's, it's usually both. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's usually something literal and metaphorical. I don't know how Bo does it over and over and over again for every arc, but, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's sort of similar to that. It's sort of the, the consequences of both the Carmine Beast's disappearance and Alexander's disappearance or vanishing uh, have sort of, the consequences of both sort of collided and that if the Carmine Beast had never died, then the, the Kenneteers never would have awakened and never would have gone to school and this all would have gone very differently. And it's also sort of, I think, the the point of no return. This definitely felt sort of like uh, a momentary pause before we sort of leap off the the thrilling whirlwind of the conclusion, you know, sort of can't go back now. Um maybe reading a little bit into it and stretching the point of no return, you know, metaphor for point. I I also like, I, I, I definitely got the impression. This is the arc that is like ending the blue heron Institute part of the story. Mm-hmm. Like obviously some of these characters will show up again, but um, yeah, like, you know, a vanishing point feels like a bit of an ending motif and it's like, we're ending this part of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I have to wonder if you know Alexander being a augur has some sort of retribution or revenge still to get in the girl's way before this all mm. resolves. <laughs> Interesting. Nah, he did. <laughs> I think either way, it's a you know statement about either his power or that nah, you kill a practitioner like they they can die suddenly like anyone else. Hmm. I I feel like. To me, at least, like mm-hmm. uh, Musa taking his place is kind of his, not his revenge, but revenge by the universe for his <laughs> death. It's a final insult. He's just getting replaced by this, like, schmuck guy. And it could also, yeah, I guess that could also be sort of vanishing point is that sort of diminishing, you know, slowly getting further and further away until you sort of disappear and mm. cease to exist. Um, but yeah, okay. And I guess uh, just before we sort of move on to the final segment, any what are we all looking forward to uh, as we head back to Kennet? Mm. We obviously got introduced to all these new Kennet others, um, and eight point eight reintroduced all of the more benign thread lines uh, like Melissa, all the family dramas, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like Cashlet. 
I'm going to pronounce it that way. Um, that that little interaction was really nice to sort of punctuate the new other dynamic and also that sense of coming home and finding, you know, comfort and all that. So I'm hoping she comes back for more as, uh, you know, green, green eyes, the fact spoilers or, you know, snowdrop, you know, sort of a companion. Hopefully she doesn't turn out to, like they said, be horrible and eat babies or anything. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that could be cool. <laughs> yeah, she I mean, might ethically eat babies. Yeah, ethically sourced. Farm <laughs> fresh. Farm to savory. <laughs> well, given... Um, oh, go ahead. Oh, um, well, I was just going to say, I think the murder investigation is going to, you know, be heating up pretty soon, and I'm looking forward to that, because we've had a pretty long stretch of other stuff. And um, I want to know who did it. <laughs> yeah, it sort of feels yep. like the last. I guess we had uh, the Carmine Beast interview back in the third arc, and then we had the coin revelation in arc five. No, I think the coin one was four. Is that in arc three as well? Or am I misremembering? Mm-hmm. Well, there was the thing with the furs, I think, a little more recently. Mm-hmm. That well, yeah. actually lead. Too many places. It was. Just I guess kind it of eliminated like the people who couldn't drive. Oh, yeah, well, that's true. It, it didn't quite eliminate the people who couldn't drive. It just meant they couldn't have done it by themselves, which I think right. at that point we kind of already were suspecting anyway. Right. Well, we know it's at least two people. Mm. Or I guess uh, practice, uh, glamour, and practice and everything makes it all. Yeah, true. Not. I think before, I think the murder investigation will get back on track. I think we're going to have some homegrown conflict first with these new others, because Kenneth was such sort of a delicate, perfect, unusual balance, you know, um, that we're going to have some some conflict between others, I think, before we uh, settle in. Mm. Um, So another thing that we like to do is force our guests to make very specific predictions. So let's get to that part of the show because I'm interested okay. to hear for you two who done it, who has done the uh, the, the big murder. Well, I want to preface this with saying that I'm not that confident in anything. Um, but if I had to make a specific prediction, and this is very influenced by the fact that I just like fairy a lot, so I, I think about them all the time. But I think it's Gilmer May because I think he he was pretty clear that he didn't really want to become the Carmine. But as an alternative to falling to winter, he might still prefer that. Mm. So I can totally see him trying to set this up so that he ends up doing that as not his final story before he falls to winter, but his final story before he becomes something else Mm. and then doesn't have to go to winter because that's like literally worse than death for a fairy and being a, you know, big red scary beast thing is like not great, but it's a preferable alternative. Uh, adding on to that, it's not my theory, but well, it's one of many theories. Anyways, Morris uh, could have set it up for him, you know, tried to get mm-hmm. that last game because the other game they were playing was sort of something she concocted of hanging around and trying to get the letter. So it seems like she's sort of attached to him. I could see her being glamoured up and being one of the perpetrators. But my theory um, I'm not sold on the one individual that's like the mastermind behind it. I think there's been sort of like a, a series of sort of dominoes following in that the Kenneth others all 
inadvertently were the cleanup crew or sort of accomplices mm. without being the direct, you know, creator of the choir necessarily or the direct, you know, mastermind behind it. Um, I could see, you know, Hungry Choir ate the meat and maybe Marasissa took the furs and, you know, they're sort of hiding and, uh, and trying to prevent it from coming out either because their arms were twisted or they were implicated or whatever. Um, given the themes and like what we saw at the Blue Heron Institute, I could bet that um, it turns out to be like a squabble politically or interpersonally with the Carmine Beast that did it, which could point the finger at one of the other three judges, maybe, maybe. <laughs> I think they're kind of the Kenneth characters that we spent the least time with. So it's it's definitely plausible in terms of just like the oh it's the person you least expect you know mm -hmm. you wouldn't expect the judge in the court case to have been the one who committed the crime partially because typically you don't go to a judge until after you have the person you think did it but whatever this is <laughs> falling apart as I'm talking no <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that and you guys oh no this is just for the yeah we don't have oh, to answer come that on. Question, so, yeah. <laughs> be bold. Um, Declare your intent. I, I, for me, Marissa <laughs> and Edith feel like the obvious choices, mm -hmm. um, which means it wouldn't be that unless <laughs> that's what Walbo wants us to think. <laughs> and this is the circle I do in my head daily. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to say them because I, yeah, I, I'm lost in in Walbo's. To, uh, I don't know. I don't know what metaphor I want to use. Uh, you're entangled like in his. <laughs> Yeah, yes, I'm very entangled in his web of lies. Um, I'm about 99% sure Marisica is involved. Uh, that's all I can say. I'm starting to think the goblins are involved now. So Marisica's my number one top pick, with the goblins kind of following up as possible. Uh, but I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, I wonder if the, the Kenneth, if, if there is possibly, you know, all these multiple people involved, if the Kenneth investigation is sort of a, like, They'll pin it on one person, so only one person goes down, but we all did it, you know? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> or uh, someone was, sort of as you were saying, someone was pulling the strings and everyone else is involved, but they don't know that everyone else is involved, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So they all think individually that they're involved and someone else, but they don't realize that all of them individually think that. I don't know. Right. Because obviously, if it was actually all of them, then they wouldn't have, you know, had an investigation happen. But well, that's if what they I'm all think, it's, oh, I've got to deflect suspicion from myself. It's it's like yeah. eight, eight people do a crime, and they know someone has to go down for it. And so they hire, and they can't decide among themselves. So they have to hire mm -hmm. someone outside and be like, all right, hopefully they'll only, you know, accuse. They would never suspect eight people doing this, so gotta and that would help with the you know realm hopping too right that it was in the the ruins mm -hmm. and you know mm -hmm. the real world and you know all these different places that maybe even in the warrens we haven't seen the warrens <laughs> i don't know if i oh do i want to see the war <laughs> <laughs> maybe it'll be too much oh i was so anxious when avery almost had to eat shit mud <laughs> yeah that fight with that america and avery was just so it felt mucky and like claustrophobic yeah it was great mm -hmm. <laughs> um all right well i guess uh we will wrap up here although uh spoiler alert there might be some extra spoilers content 
at the end of this episode. So stay tuned for that. But yeah, uh, Ink off. Thank you both for coming on the show. It's been great to have you. It was great to come. Yeah, of course. Um, is there anything that uh, you would like to plug anywhere that people can go to to follow up your work if you're uh, keen to have them? Well, I am starting a campaign to save Mile End by mailing Wildbow cursed magical items until he agrees to run another <laughs> session. Sort of like how they saved Friday Night Lights by mailing in light bulbs, but with a sort mm. of element of extortion to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if anyone has any like haunted dolls or murder weapons inhabited by vengeful spirits, send them to his cabin in the Canadian wilderness. um i have a million projects always about to be started but never actually started so i don't have anything particular to plug but if you guys are interested in more mile and i did on reddit uh a one point post uh gathered pages sort of document that does have all the while uh, the mile end sort of physical book stuff um that we received so uh, people are still interested in mile end and reading that but don't want to write uh read our long rps that we were very much into but were very long uh that is up on reddit somewhere in my either comment or post history i don't remember if i was replying or not uh under ink sword so thumbs up for that all right cool um so thank you for listening everybody uh if you would like to catch more of the show you can follow us on twitter to see all of our updates on the show and, and live reads and all that stuff that's uh, at mdmd podcast or just search power reflection on twitter uh, yep, you can find out about all the other Doof shows, uh, apart from Bell Reflections, at doofmedia.com. Uh, we have just launched our own, like, packed-ish related uh, actual play podcast, so you can check that one out. That's called Pace. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yes, uh, if you want to support all the shows on the Doof Media Network, such as Pace, such as all the other great shows, you can head to patreon.com forward slash doofmedia and become one of our patrons. Or while you're on Patreon, make sure you head to patreon.com forward slash Wabo and give Wabo some money because he definitely deserves it for all the great stuff that he does. <laughs> Absolutely. So with that out of the way, should we go back to Pact? Yes. Uh, so just if you're still here and you haven't read Pact, this is going to get into Pact spoilers. So uh, so get out. Yeah, get, get go read Pact. Come on. <laughs> um, so who wants to bring up some Pact spoilies? Uh... I, I will say uh, the watching the goblin dynamic with Liberty in America and comparing it to how Mags handled goblins mm. and sort of her introduction to uh, the goblin queen life uh, was really interesting. And uh, seeing sort of people more, you know, Mags was very much in that sort of binding, uh, twisting the arm service of goblins, which is understandable given her backstory um but yeah so it was cool to see that you can work with goblins sort of willingly and nicely as much as goblins can be nice yeah speaking of everyone's favorite girl in the checkered scarf (laughs) i do want to note briefly because i think a lot of people miss this she uh sort of kind of shows up in the first mile end session at the very beginning she Um, does yeah so if that intrigues you go read that and check it out (laughs) um yeah there you go yeah i was one of the people who missed that until somebody pointed it out to me (laughs) her surname was just not as uh instantly recognizable for me i guess i think they mentioned the um, scarf which is the whole big deal with mags (laughs) the character is 90 percent scarf (laughs) (laughs) um no but you're right like like, mags wasn't a, a 
bad person, but I guess just the way she was inducted into the practice and also the goblins she had around her. Right. Uh, in Jacob's Bell, uh, she definitely didn't, yeah, whereas, like, compared to Liberty, at least, like, mm-hmm. Liberty's just such a sweetheart with the goblins, whereas Mags was very much a, 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 a stern, uh, offhand uh, teacher. Liberty is a positive, uh, a positive binding, and Mags was a, a reverse bind, a negative binding sort of deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and I do have to wonder though um, if, like, uh, Liberty in America had to fight against um, the why can't I remember its name? The beast Blake fought in the woods. The that, hyena. Yeah, the hyena. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, how that would work out i guess they're probably still trained as like really good binders of goblins presumably but uh it seems like they're still sort of in the the kiddie pool of the depth that goblins get Mm. into yeah we got to see them giving the goblins the carrot but i'm sure they're also very experienced in giving them the stick Mm -hmm. Mm. yeah someone like the hyena will pretty quickly go through all of the goodwill liberty might show it (laughs) I, I don't think it, it, <laughs> she wouldn't last long enough to show it if she just showed up with some candy and you know I, I think it's still and that is a big thing I think is a difference between uh, Pact and Pale and that is a part of the result of the perspective that we see it from is the how um, how much conflict the and how sort of irredeemable the others are or aren't in, in Pact the and Pale even. yeah Mm. Eh, well that could sort of be chalked up to us seeing mostly uh adult practitioners and packed and kid practitioners and pale because i think they've run into some of the same problems that's true but even among the adults it feels like there's more nicer ones than there were in packed whereas there it was like pretty much all varying degrees of asshole there are a lot a lot of like musa types i would say yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. it definitely does feel like like in packed the universe was constantly throwing all of the others at Blake that are like exactly the ones who are the reason practitioners are like this now. Like you have scary goblins like the hyena that make everyone learn how to like fight goblins, and right. then like that's how and that's how the 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 ball ends up shifting too far. Mm-hmm. Whereas like the the Kenneteers are much more meeting the others who don't like. don't warrant this sort of uh you know strict control yeah yeah and i i mean i do sort of have i've seen a lot of comments where everyone's like oh racist against the brownies or whatever you know sort of calling this absolute uh, treating others like total you know like the practitioners are total monsters for sort of dehumanizing the the others but I do feel like there, there's probably some justified reasons for them becoming so sort of defensive. And it's sort of a sad state that it got this far and that, you know, they can't sort of coexist. But speaking as someone who has gone on the run from several mm. uh, evil cursed objects, I've got to agree with occasionally <laughs> binding or destroying some others. Yeah. Yeah. The Canada <laughs> others think- are like, extreme outliers in terms of, like, niceness. See, I, I guess, I, I don't know about ex- extreme outliers, but I, for me, I feel like Pale's raising the point of, like, even if there is something like the hyena out there, that doesn't mean we should go and exterminate packs of goblins when there could be cherry pops in amongst it. Like, right. 
um, like that's sort of where it's swung too far. Is just because something like the hyena exists, that doesn't mean we punish all goblin kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like Pact sort of showed us all of those evil monsters, but I feel like Pale's showing us, yeah, but that's not all of them. And uh, yeah, and like you know, you can't just yeah be mean to all goblins because there's hyenas out there. You can't wait until Pale introduces an adorable demon character that's, you know, speaks in a <laughs> cutesy little voice, but also infects everything around it with horrible karmic radiation. Yeah, I, I, I think demons may exist as the exception to that rule. I, I, this, demons are probably the one where I'm like, yeah, we can just go ahead and lock pretty much all of them up on site. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think sort of Pale's approach, uh, Pack's approach is very much more sort of there are monsters out there with hints of nicer monsters right and i think pale treats them a lot more like they're wild animals and they have their own needs and mm-hmm. like sometimes uh a wild you know uh, a, a mountain lion might a- attack a person but it's because we're intruding mm-hmm. on their territory or there's no food or whatever and that there may be some way to you know, find a balance between their natures, um, where it, sometimes there's you know rabid dogs that need to be put down. But yeah, exactly. But it, oh, dogs are a great thing, uh, like a great metaphor, because it's like you don't you don't enslave all dogs because a couple of them bite. Like you know, I'm not going to punish a chihuahua because a wolf like attacked a child. Although, to be fair, the nicer dogs mostly exist because we bred them to be that way over generations. You know, back when it was just wolves, like, the nicest wolf would still probably eat you if it thought it could. Oh, well, one could argue the Seal of Solomon was sort of our domestication uh, domestication of the others, yeah. That's a good Mm. point. And it's, it's good to also sort of get a barometer on karma and how much that can affect your ability to survive in the pact world because blake wasn't <laughs> forsworn but he did have a shit ton of bad karma whereas the girls are mostly you know blank slates are good karma so they're able to make friends with others and other practitioners and you know all that yeah i'm sure this is a trite observation but it's so funny the differences when they awoke where with blake he instantly aggroed every other within a hundred mile radius to immediately <laughs> come kill him even before he awoke, they were trying to kill him. And with the Kenneth practitioners, the others were the ones who awoke them. And up until, like, very recently, were pretty much exclusively nice to them. Yeah, I think reading the both Pact and Pill together is a real great sort of perspective A, perspective B. Where can yeah. you sort of find the truth of how one should conduct oneself? And we- um, Actually, sorry, another connection. Uh, we just uh, met some incarnations. Yeah. Mm. And they weren't quite as scary as the previous one. Well, they <laughs> no. seem to be less powerful, right? Like, Conquest obviously had yeah. had a lineage of practitioners serving under him that seemed to have given him a real boost. Yeah. yeah. I just, I, I wonder, like, again, I, I know I sort of bring this up every time we do, we do like, a back-to-back, but, like, I can't wait to see how, having met those three colors perceptions of Conquest when he's first met, mm. somebody From... picks up Pact after reading Pale. Right. Um... And I, ha- I have to wonder um, if being in the ruins is a specific choice, and it's sort of interesting that... Yeah. yeah. And they were working together, and it's that it brings up some interesting incarnation questions. Mm. I mean, I think their incarnation concepts were more 
attuned to cooperation than conquests was mm. uh, oh, because yeah. it was a bit of a, <laughs> a theme of of like wanting something mm-hmm. after them or seeking right like, uh, I, I imagine that's how the three of them managed to find common ground is between hunting inquisition and yearning they're all about like seeking something maybe mm-hmm. if left alone long enough especially in the ruins are supposed to be sort of the abyss for uh immaterial spirits and stuff maybe they'll like sort of mush together and combine into be something more like conquest with more broad powers and broad definitions so i don't know if being too broad hurts an incarnation Mm. also is it weird that conquest got named a lord in this i guess he what technically was possessing a practitioner but we've seen this whole dynamic where it's supposed to be practitioners judge others and that's what the lords do and then others judge practitioners and that's what the judges do and conquest is sort of Mm. weird in that dynamic I could be totally misremembering, but it's possible that was one of those deals where someone tried to make a conquest their familiar and they just got totally ate and then he had like a, you know, basically a host. I mean, that's sort of what like almost happened to Rose when she was using him as a power battery. Uh, so I could totally see something like that having happened before where he like gets access to a practitioner, you know, more he, than he another was possessing does. someone. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. Because he took a new human host uh, when he captured Fel's right. great-granddaddy or right. whatever. Um, but I also think, from memory, Conquest was a figurehead uh, lord as well. Like, right. they were all keeping him there because he was, because as an incarnation, he couldn't mm-hmm. really be killed. So he was easy, like, target. Um, and then if you think about the rest of the Toronto Council, Isadora was the only other on the council. It was like Jeremy, the Sisters of the Torch, mm-hmm. the Astrologer. Mm-hmm. And Isadora did teach uh, practice to, I guess she's one of those others that can also kind of practice. Mm. She was uh, taught law magic to uh, Paige. Paige, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, she was probably taking human familiars or something to keep herself in that position. So it was still quite a human-centric setup. Like, Conquest was a bit of a figurehead, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's possible that incarnations like play by different rules to some degree because they are like molded by human perceptions and concepts in a way that like more distinct others aren't. Like the fairy are kind of their own thing, even if obviously you know human uh, society has some impact on them. But with conquest, like he is a you know manifestation of actual human acts of conquest. Mm. It's kind of a it's a very cool. fuzzy line. <laughs> Has everything in the pact verse. <laughs> True. And you go. I think that's all. Uh, well, yeah. I have one more thing, uh, which is uh, oh, yeah. a question, I guess, here in Back to Pack. So both Blake and the Kenneteers both kind of went, this sucks. Adult practitioner society is awful. I'm going to fix it. Um, mm. How do you compare their success and approaches and, you know, for, for all that? Uh, who, who made, who's going to make the bigger mark? I, I hate to, to throw our boy Blake under the bus here, but he was so much fighting uphill that I felt like mm. he just never really had a chance, you know? Like, <laughs> he had yeah. some good ideas, but so many things were stacked against him. Right. Whereas on the flip side, the Kenneteers have started from a position of having this kind of already set up a bit for them. And if they push it as hard as Blake did, I'm sure they will make much more of a tangible mark. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think Blake never had that chance to try and analyze what he was doing he just got to tore systems down Mm. he never got to 
think about restructuring them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas the Kenneteers are much more thinking about what do we want the world to be? Blake never got to think past, I don't like it as it is. Right. He he was, uh, I'm going to cut out the bad without thinking about what he was going to build afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I think it, that's also a consequence of him just not being able to look very far into the future because he was going to be dead. Yeah. I think to be fair to him, the Kenneteers will probably have a better long-term impact, but in terms of like the actual tally where we are now in the middle of this story and at the end of Pact, I think Blake has had a more positive impact on balance just because he killed a bunch of assholes and they haven't really killed <laughs> that many people in comparison. So I think they'll oh. probably run up the score later on, but right now he is in the lead in my estimation. Part of why I'm so interested to to see what Toronto looks like in this uh, like now is because to me what blake was doing was the equivalent of killing the carmine beast mm-hmm. like he's he was the one who would fracture the system enough for something to open and for change to happen and the kenneteers are almost the conceptual follow-up of okay like the system's a bit ruffled right now how can we try and do something about it and they sort of failed at the blue hair institute because because musa got put in there but like yeah, like I, I feel like what Blake did to places like Toronto was the equivalent of killing the Carmine Beast and, and opening the doors to the chaos for something to change. Yeah, everyone sort of complains that the Kenneteers are wild cards, but man, Blake shook some stuff up. <laughs> Maybe he killed the Carmine Beast. You consider that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be, be a, a great twist. twist. The, the hyena and, and Blake yeah. killed the Carmine we Beast. We finally, yeah, do some like augury back in time to see who killed the Carmine Beast. It was just these two little birds. Do you think, uh, would Rose have the lack of morals to create the Hungry Choir? I'm uh, 50-50 on that. Mm-hmm. If she was desperate yeah, so enough, she would. But I don't know if the Most position... Most revenants are, like, equally dubious in terms of, like, their origins. So it's not that far of a leap to go from using them to creating them mm. and from there to creating something like the Hungry Choir. But to be fair, to right towards the end of Pact, Rose absorbed a lot of Blake. Mm. That's true. So the, the Rose who exists after Arc 16 of Pact uh, may be quite different. Like, this is why we need the Avengers-style team-up story, <laughs> so that we can see all the Pact characters, like, ten years later. Right. Yeah. Or they can all show up as bit characters in Mile End, like uh, Maggie did. <laughs> <laughs> Mile End is the team-up story. <laughs> Exactly. Why couldn't you have killed the Carmine Beast a little sooner while we were in trouble? I'm, I'm just imagining some rogue player being like, Wabo's like, oh yes, and then there were two little birds. And then some player's just like, I shoot lightning at the birds. <laughs> yeah. uh, or just fully metagaming and like, I'm going to look in the phone book for a Rose Thorburn. Yeah. <laughs> no reason to know who that is in, in universe. I don't care. I want to talk to a quick, that's a quick way for Wildbo to like accidentally drop an anvil on your character's head. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, oh no, your character died. See ya. Uh, fun, yeah. fun fact: when he first put open the auditions for Mile End and everyone applied, he said, "I'm taking five players," and then he ended up taking six players, and he pretty much set us down and said, "I'm not that enthusiastic about dealing with six <laughs> players. Oh, One of you is probably going to die." <laughs> quickly oh, i mean man, we didn't get to that brutal. point i, totally I think it evened that. out but yeah he basically said hey, if i'm not feeling six players one of you is one of you is gonna die damn <laughs> harsh 
<laughs> yeah. So that's actually what he does to all the characters at the start of a story. <laughs> <too>. <laughs> he sit, he sat down with each Marlin player and told us that we were going to die at some point in the story. <laughs> and it wasn't until we chatted that we reconciled. He had said that to everybody. <laughs> It wasn't the group chat. It wasn't one on one. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, and honestly, I feel like I probably would have died. I had the lowest uh, power rating of anyone, and Sherry was way too hot headed. So, mm. <laughs> I volunteer as <sighs> tribute. No. Um, <laughs> well, everyone um, liked her. No one liked June. So, no. I think if there was voting, well, when been, one well, door closes, a lot of other doors <laughs> close. <laughs> Ah, uh, love me a good call. <laughs> <All right. laughs> um, well, thanks for coming on the show, folks. <laughs> yeah, it's been good times. Yeah. Sorry, we got a little off topic there. It's been uh, fun. It wouldn't be a, a good know, podcast without going off topic. <laughs> All right. And then... Thank you so much for inviting us. It was a great time. Yeah, absolutely. No, of course. And now the show's over. <laughs>